also love to get to the point where we give one another the benefit of the doubt. Yes. <clears throat> you know, where if something happens in our community and we see that there's something posted online, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's in our space. I mean, and and people see that, you know, we've put in the work and we have the relationships and we are actually working to have the tough conversations that if something occurs, I mean, there's we have 6,000 employees. I serve, we serve a million and a half Oklahomans this year. Something's going to happen somewhere yeah. uh, that we're given the benefit of the doubt rather than just immediately go to um, that there is a, a space of, of corruption or evil or whatever, right? So That's right. And I, I think that if you, if you are genuine in your desire to build those bridges, as we talk about, you and I talk about a lot, um, then you know, hopefully we can get to that space. Yeah, that's true. And, and I, I Welcome to the Thousand Stories Podcast. It's great to have you here today, my good friend Clarence Hill, uh, and all of you listening. Uh, This podcast is here really to celebrate incredible visionary leaders, wonderful collaborations, uh, really life-changing and world-changing projects that uh, I have the opportunity to see on a regular basis across the state and across the country now. Um, and really to honor those, to lift those up, to celebrate, because the public narrative is one of brokenness and corruption. And I really believe that that is a very small uh, component of what's actually happening in our communities. There's so much good happening, and we want to honor that and celebrate those who are doing good. And I'm sitting across from a friend of mine who is doing real good here uh, in Oklahoma and beyond. Actually, we've just talked for some time about uh, outside of the borders of the state of Oklahoma. And so I'm honored that you're here, my friend Clarence Hill. Uh, you're a pastor, you're a leader in um, racial equity conversations and uh, really are seen as somebody who is um, just a pioneer in this space. And so um, first, I want to honor you in that and thank, thank you, you for your partnership. Thank you. Um, I also want to make sure we leave space for you to honor others. So that's mm-hmm. really the conversation today. But if you would, please just jump in and introduce yourself and what brings you to the work that you do. I, I sure will. First, I want to say thank you because this podcast represents one of the solutions that we were able to see clearly in the literally hundreds of hours of community conversations where we um, spent time talking to those who wanted to make a difference, but they lived in communities that had almost no voice. Uh, They weren't really heard really well, like the Northeast community, and some people know of the Northeast community, and the loud booms with the cars. I remember us having those conversations years ago, and uh, But we did discover that what we needed was relationships to be built between those who want to make a difference. It's just that some people had positions of influence, had the resources to do things, and others that maybe were from the community did not have those relationships and connections. And I have watched you create spaces and do things that a lot of people don't see um, where you are raising the platform, not for your own gain, but you raise the platform and the visibility of those who are making a difference in communities that are typically overlooked. So hats off to you for what you do behind the scenes 
And uh, hats off to you for doing this podcast because I, I just believe that if, if more of us could hear the stories of these, I call, we call them champions that are serving their communities, we can make a difference. So uh, my name's Clarence Hill, and I, 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 I love, I call myself a treasure hunter. Uh, I just, I look for people who are bringing solutions. And I've been blessed to have uh, met a lot of people in my years in Oklahoma. And uh, through that process, I discovered that, wow, I can even help some raise the visibility of those who are overlooked. So I have the privilege of meeting several people who are making a difference in a lot of spaces. So I try to find ways to do that. Uh, I love the fact that I'm called to be a, a pastor. Um, it's an honor to me. Uh, it may be no surprise that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is a role model for me. Um, that may not be a surprise at all, but when I think about the world that he lived in and to use the language of DHS and the vision you've laid out, his true north was a beloved community. His true north was not to have vengeance, but to see a day where all of the, his children and the black and white children could play together. I mean, to, to keep that clarity while people were dying and facing injustice is just amazing to me. So I say if he could be that faithful, then I don't have anything to complain about. Um, but I'm, I'm also, uh, I also lead uh, a movement called Stronger Together. And we just, all of those who serve in Stronger Together, mostly volunteers, we carry these ideas with us. We're a movement. We say, take any of these ideas that help further the conversation and run with them. And one of my favorite uh, phrases in our conversation is to influence at the level of your authority. So we're like, uh, we, we love the idea of those of us who have resources, those of us who have relationships that can make a difference. It's wonderful to see you serving in the soup line. But if you have the influence to change systems, policies, or to speak to your buddy who may not be listening to all of the right voices. When I say the right voices, I'm not saying cancel the people you're listening to. But if you're only listening to the people in the palace, that's a, the term we use a lot, um, and you're not listening to the community who's on the ground and you're just gaining your perspectives from a difference, up from a difference, from a distance, please, um, let's build some relationships there and challenge some of the things that we've heard about, quote unquote, them. Well, um, we've seen uh, repeated stories of people who actually ha always had compassion and care in their hearts, but they were being fed information by those who did not have relationship with anybody outside of their wealth class, had never spent a day with people who were struggling never had gone into the community. And like I said, the reason I celebrate you is I, I watched leaders because I had to make a decision that I really didn't want to be uh, in a lot of public spaces anymore with leaders who didn't understand that because I felt like I was cheating the people who were looking to me to say, um, I wanted to be able to say, you can trust this leader. And, and, and so that's why I can say clearly about you, 
I watch what you do outside of DHS, and that's why I keep celebrating. Uh, Justin Brown, I'm going to get me a Justin Brown T-shirt soon uh, because you, you are influencing at the level of your authority. So thank you again for doing that. But um, outside of that, uh, one of my favorite roles is being a husband and a father. So I've been married. It'll be 23 years, 4th of July. Oh, you got me beat. We're at 20. (laughs) Well, don't expect me to start counseling you. I'll tell you what not to do. (laughs) So, um, But I'm super, super thankful for uh, just the the gift of marriage and family. I have four children. My first graduate, uh, we did... We started off homeschooling, so in the homeschool world, you do like your own version of a graduation. Well, they finished off going to uh, a private school, and my wife was like, look, I schooled them for nine years. I'm going to get some of my own homeschool graduation, and we're going to do this because I've got my stripes from having to figure this all out. So we did it, and I stepped up there to try to start talking about my children and I'm, I was just a crying mess standing up there. So they're my joy. And um, I, I only say that to say um, one of the things that drives me is uh, from an incident that happened when I was in college. I think I was probably around the age of 20. And I saw um, in a really painful way how so many people have uh, lost the gift of family, and I ran into five children. I was on summer break. Uh, I was an athlete. I was a walk-on at Iowa State University. Uh, I played basketball under Johnny Orr, and I'm at home, and I'm just like, I'm thankful that I'm on the right path. I'm in college, you know, et cetera. My parents set me up well, although, although they did not have that opportunity themselves. Now I want to make a difference. So I go down, and I'm serving in a, near a poor neighborhood, and we're having this carnival, and these five kids come up, and I'm ready. I'm like, if they don't listen to me for five minutes, I know what to say in my five minutes. Don't give up, kids. Stay in school. Go for it. Um, you can do it. I mean, I'm just ready to encourage All of them. the motivational posters oh, you've got them memorized. I go, okay. Yeah, but you can have told me that because I'm thinking they just need to know they have friends. I'm not going to drive past you. I want to know your name. So I'm there. But, boy, I had never followed them far enough to see the painful world they lived in. And one day that happened after about five or six weeks of knowing these kids, I had to take them home because I think it was raining or something. And finally, the oldest, who was about 13, who had kind of the educational and communication level of an eight-year-old, she slumped down in her seat, didn't want to really go back in, and basically found out that she was the uh, kind of the leader of these other five kids, and they were pretty much raising themselves because mom was on crack and dad was a drunk. And there I was in my privileged middle-class life, getting ready to drop them off and go back home to a full refrigerator, back to a future, back to class in the fall. And I was I was devastated because I, I didn't know what to do. I was broke. I couldn't save these kids. And I'd always said to myself, when I figure out how to change things, I'm coming back. So that's... So, I, so that's, that's why 
I was probably a crying mess at my child's graduation mm-hmm. just to have the gift of being a rare um, black male in America who can be able to say that just three days ago my parents had their 50th anniversary and I got to celebrate my own daughter's graduation. And so many of my younger friends don't get that opportunity. And so it to think that when people drive past them on the road, they see them as the problem in society. And I see them as the hope. Mm-hmm. So how much does that, uh, do those kids in that story, that situation that you were in when you were younger, how much does that motivate you? How frequently do you think about that on a regular basis? Um, The only thing that gives me satisfaction is when I start seeing results. And I know that kids that are in that situation now are finding bridges. Mm -hmm. So it's everything. It, it It was one of the biggest markers in my life. Uh, yeah, I have found in talking to people, and I'm no different, <clears throat> is that uh, when you put a person's face to the mission that you're on, um, yeah. you know, coming here and doing this work that seems so big yep. um, because of the size of the agency and the scale of the work that we do, um, it just turns into transactions. But when you when you actually sort of anchor into a person's face or a, a family's name, and ex- a personal experience yes. you've had with somebody that you're, it helps you to build systems to scale when you think about that one individual person. And in fact, I, I have this, that experience I'm, almost every morning. I wake up thinking about specific situations and that just, I mean, it just fires you up first thing. That's so rich. Yeah. That's actually one of the things uh, that we created in this training to help leaders bridge the gap because there's a space that we can live in where we are part of building out systems and organizations, but we actually lose touch. And so I always ask, I'm like, okay, now tell me the name of one kid Mm. that's in poverty. Tell me the name of one person. So it's like uh, one of the things that I think helps us stay grounded and clear in what we do is human relationships and uh, where we don't get too far into the office that we forget why we're doing what we're doing. Mm. That's beautiful. So you mentioned a minute ago uh, the concept of listening to the community. I know this is not why we're here to talk about specific stories. So, yes. so we'll prepare for that. We'll do that here in a second. But you talked about listening to the community and uh, really bringing the voice of those who really don't have a voice in, in many places. So can you, can you share with us um, some just – opportunities maybe you've had or that you see other people in, in the sort of the best way for people to uh, maybe not necessarily at a big organization but an individual person yeah. to how, how can we as individuals listen to those that we don't engage with on a regular basis so the the two words we use is simply to show up there are spaces that those in overlooked communities and in minority communities create that aren't really created just to be exclusive. It's simply that when you see all Hispanics or Latinx people on the brochure, it's assumed it's only for their group. Or if you only see African-Americans or blacks on the brochure, it's only assumed it's for their group. 
And what we what what our notes told us from all of the hours of saying how do we get to tomorrow, it's like let's just start showing up. Go to their restaurants. Let's start celebrating our cultures instead of letting being, them define us as different. Oh yep. man. And then you learn people's names, and then you'll actually see some great stories of people who make great and tremendous sacrifices to say, I'm not moving out of the Northeast community because this is my community, this is where I grew up. And they know if they move to Atlanta, they'd make more money, or if they move to Dallas, they'd make more money. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard like that. Um, where you will have couples that are that are saying, yeah, it's hard. Um, we wish we had more relationships with people who have resources, but we went to school so that we could make a difference where we're needed, and they make the choice. I'm thinking of a young couple uh, right now um, who helped lead um, an event that was recent. I don't know if they're still leading the event themselves, but one OKC, and... Um, Dr. Quentin Hughes, um, haven't talked to him in a year, but when I meet these, I call them young people. I, I don't think we're too far apart in age, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel we're starting I, to look at I me still like, I consider both of us as young. I'm trying. I'm holding on. <laughs> I am holding on. Just don't ask my kids. Right. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. And I, I see these young people so sharp so smart, these these leaders, uh, so competent, who love their communities and they're making a difference. And I know, I'm like, this these, these leaders, they could go anywhere they want to, but they know someone has to be the pioneer to start saying, we're going to stay here and just set an example and we're going to make a difference for these kids who, if we don't show up, who knows if anyone will show up at all. Hmm. So those are the two words, show up. I love that. I tell you, show up is fantastic. Um, <clears throat> I uh, have, am continually, continually surprised and um, impressed by the younger generations growing up. So uh, they they jump in to serve so um, recklessly almost, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are, there don't, they don't seem to appreciate or recognize barriers that prior generations would have considered as a barrier to engagement. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I really do believe, again, maybe somewhat contrary to public narrative, that the future, we're in, we're in pretty good hands uh, for, fu- for the future. It's true. And, and, and so bridge builders are starting to rise up. So that was such a, a, a painful gap um, if we just use one conversation in the black-white conversation. There was a painful black uh, gap between the Northeast community and the history of the injustices, everything from urban renewal. And I'm not from Northeast Oklahoma City, but my, my first friends were from Northeast Oklahoma City. And I would hear the stories and some of the same stories you would hear in black communities across the country. And man, I... I was, I'm just so impressed when I see leaders that have been in these communities for a long time who feel like they've made efforts to build bridges. I'm so impressed when I talk to them and they can continue to find their true north without growing bitter. And so I also want to mention uh, what I would call a le- legacy leaders, that there are leaders in these communities um, 
where maybe someone on the outside would feel like, oh, they, they've got a sharp tongue or what they say stings or something like that. I'm like, no, you've got to put their uh, travels into context. Some of these younger uh, college graduates haven't had to carry the rejection or feeling overlooked as long as these other leaders have. And so I'm impressed for the journey that they've been on, how they've been able to keep true north. So I see a couple things happening. I see leaders from outside of uh, minority communities saying, I'm going to show up and we're going to figure this out. I've seen people endure uh, painful conversations coming to the reality of how much pain there is between ethnic groups and between wealth classes. But now you're starting to see so many things happen uh, where you see collaboration between leaders who have influence and leaders who are serving communities that are overlooked. And some things are happening that have been a long time coming. For example, um, one of the greatest Facebook posts I saw uh, in this year was the opening of the grocery store in Northeast. Were you there? I was not there. I had another uh, obligation oh. at the same time. We just had them on the podcast. So we talked about uh, and celebrated the, the grand opening and so told that story of Restore OKC. But please, for those who haven't uh, listened to that episode, please share. It's 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 it's. It carries so many of the stories. There was, um, there were those that have been in that community working towards uh, addressing food insecurity long before that group succeeded. So when I look at the conversation, and I remember the conversations we were in, even with the Oklahoma City County Health Department creating a mobile uh, grocery store and and seeking to bring food and regional food bank getting involved and the Benkowskis with uh, Buy for Less and others in the community seeking to try to figure out how to solve this uh, this tremendous challenge of being in what would be considered a food desert. To see these uh, so many faces in that crowd on Facebook, it took that many people coming together to work together simply to do one thing, and that's to care. Hmm. And I mean, I mean, I can just, I could land whether it's Jonathan Veal running the grocery store, who himself the same weekend that he's opening the grocery store, he is uh, wrestling with the pain. He was a childhood friend of George Floyd, that the verdict was coming out that same weekend, and he's like near sleepless because and this great moment is happening, and he's in that dual world. My brother, uh, Leeds, is the chairman of the board for uh, Restore OKC, which is uh, led by Kaylee Dotson. Her dynamic leadership of serving and finding ways to be supportive of the leaders in the community. My brother and his wife, they moved into the Northeast community uh, with the church, because they wanted to love there. And I'm telling you, there are hundreds of stories in the community of people who are caring. And and I, that's why I say for me to watch that Facebook post and know the stories behind these faces and the number of sacrifices to, to what we would say in three words is love your neighbor is just powerful. 
Well, Jonathan sat here a couple of weeks ago. Oh, Kaylee sat here a okay. couple of weeks ago. And we saw pictures and we talked about uh, okay. everything that led up to the opening and what the future of solving for food insecurity in Northeast Oklahoma City looks like. And so uh, we absolutely celebrate um, all of the efforts of all of those people who were not, of course, on the show, but uh, who contributed so greatly over those years. And we appreciate, I, I personally appreciate uh, the opportunity to know those people because they are true change makers. Um, and at the same time, to sort of try to be in a space to help facilitate them to continue to solve for the problems that they see. Because food insecurity is only one. Yeah. Uh, and But uh, but also work together to try to, to build scale to solve the same problem in other communities that exist across uh, our state. So, so true. It's um, it's it was it's a powerful story, and I'm glad you brought that up, and we could celebrate them again. Well, another another name that I would love to kind of bridge this, and I'm not trying to sit here boasting on you, but I think it's worth uh, bringing up is uh, Councilwoman Nikki Nice. And so, when people ask me about the Northeast community, I tell them, I said, I'm not from there. I'm like, go meet the leaders who are serving in their community. Talk to them. They don't bite, you know. <laughs> you know, it's it's real easy. It's really, really easy. I mean, I'm going to tell everybody a big old secret right now. If you celebrate somebody and boast on somebody, they might want to listen to you, <laughs> right? They might want to be a friend. They might grow in trust if you don't go into that community trying to tell people what to do before you value what they've already done and the sacrifices they've already made. And I've seen uh, Councilwoman Nice just consistently be present. And so you have launched another solution to me, which is you had the idea of launching the Council of Voices, of which Councilwoman Nikki Nice is a part of. And I've had the privilege of um, being in those meetings where you said, let's bring together different ethnic groups and leaders who represent these communities that are typically unheard so that they can speak into the different uh, branches and efforts of DHS who serve over a million Oklahomans. But you wanted to make sure that no one was being overlooked. And man, to hear the angles that these leaders bring, that only someone who lives in those spaces could help us to understand how to love others better how to care better is just amazing. So, again, thanks for being an example of, um, of, of the types of leaders that are going to help Oklahoma become a shining example to other states. Well, and thank you. I, uh, honestly, uh, the work, I, I'm always humbled by the fact that those folks are willing to show up and, and speak into the work that we're doing. Uh, and so every time we have one of those calls, I sort of keep my fingers crossed, like, you know, do they, will they really show up for us again? And mm-hmm. every time they do and bring so much value, uh, because I, I do believe that the systems that we create are intended to serve communities, but were never informed by the communities that they were intended to serve. Great. And so that's, uh, that's the work that we're trying to do. So th- thank you for that. Um, I would love to now transition to celebrating and telling some other stories um, I know that um, you've brought up to me, I mean, you're so such a great storyteller. Um, you've told me some other ones before, but uh, I don't have any in particular in mind. But mm-hmm. um, the opportunity here is to to just elevate somebody else's voice and to, to share some stories of uh, that's, that people need to hear about. So uh, any anyone come to mind? 
Yes, uh, several, several. So I've shared stories of some of the minority leaders um, who are serving in communities that are overlooked. But I also want to share um, about leaders who are white, who if you probably looked at them from a distance, you may not expect that they care or they've been making a difference already. Uh, the George Floyd incident, Ahmaud Arbery, but especially George Floyd, has brought the racial conversation to the forefront. Um, the dangerous thing is that there are um, voices and platforms on both sides that are driving a lot of the stories about what's missing. And while I, we have to be very, very uh, focused on having truthful honest conversations at tables together. We don't want to ignore pain. We don't want to act like America has had this perfect history because it has. we, we have not. Uh, but we do want to also tell the stories of those who have made tremendous sacrifices and have been uh, faithful. Uh, anyone would say overall that we, we have a journey to make to get there to get to a day where we have our representational leadership across the board. But I want to tell about uh, Dr. John Fazer. He is uh, the president of Mid-America Christian University. A lot of people don't know this, but he leads one of the most diverse, ethnically diverse universities in the state. And he's very intentional about that, and a lot of people don't know that. Um, I know him personally, so I know that he doesn't he doesn't want that to be the leading part of the conversation because he doesn't want to use that and use his care for others as some kind of a platform. So he, he does a lot of this stuff just almost second nature. But when I first met him, he invited me to be a part of a, a, converse, a group of conversations. And when I came in, I, I noticed of these things, just like uh, I, I know what to look for. But he was making sure that when he brought leaders together to support Mid-America Christian University, he wanted to make sure that black leaders were in the room too. And every time I walked in that room, I wasn't giving one dime to the university, right? You know, I'm working two jobs as it is, trying to support our own nonprofit. <laughs> so, but he wanted to make sure that he always had diverse relationships, speaking into the university, being a part of that university, and he did not care how much we did or did not give, and he always made sure that he had black pastors and black leaders in that room. Now, that may seem small, but we, when we say, when I, when I use that term for our Stronger Together movement to influence uh, at the level of your authority, we all have tables. And I don't think we need to ask anybody to influence beyond a table that they steward. But even if I'm just stewarding my own dining room table, I can invite someone over who typically wouldn't expect to come into my home to build bridges. Well, he had the ability to bring people to the table when he thought about supporting his university. But he didn't think of support just in dollars and cents. He thought about support and what different ethnic groups could contribute 
through their own experience and through their life stories. So I want to celebrate uh, Dr. John Fosser at Mid-America Christian University for doing these things long before all of these racial upheavals were even happening. So um, in that specific case, uh, what do you see as the value that Mid-America Christian University um, brings to the people that they serve because of that um, that true north that he may have um, to to improve the sort of diversity of those who, who speak into the work at the university? So there are ways that conversations uh, need to be handled that can be very, very sticky, especially around race. There's so much misunderstanding. You've got one group that when they think about someone kneeling in front of a flag and they know one of their family members died or they have military family, it is the most offensive thing they can think of. They can't even comprehend the idea that for someone on the other side of the spectrum who is young, they're on a basketball team, and in their world, they have dealt with injustice. They have been handled in a wrong way, or they know of someone that's in jail that should not be. And a lot of our conversations around our dinner tables in black families came to the forefront in 2016 because of cell phone videos. But it wasn't a surprise to black families. I mean, we we talk about this stuff at our reunions. We talk about what's going on. But now the whole nation was hearing stuff that we were talking about in the background. Well, now the whole world is wrestling with some of the things uh, that we used to see um, back then. So I say all that to say when you have a leader like a uh, John Fosert who brings people to the table together and when you have these challenges that face us like kneeling at the flag, now you have more voices when it's time to say, now how do we as a university work through this together through dialogue? So he was able to sit down with his athletes and tell them, I'm with you and for you. Let's talk about this together. You don't have to scream at me from a distance. I'm with you. And that's that's the difference of being at a table together. And that's what he was able to have uh, going into um, this past year, relationship and, tr- and a certain level of trust. And I will tell you, um, because of the hard context that we're all in, I've been misunderstood. He's been misunderstood. Most leaders have been misunderstood on both sides. But that just comes with the ball game. And I, I just say, let's be like Dr. King and keep, keep our true north clear so we can get to a better tomorrow. And I think we can do that in Oklahoma. I would also love to get to the point where we give one another the benefit of the doubt. Yes. <clears throat> you know, where if something happens in our community and we see that there's something posted online, mm-hmm. you know, Maybe it's in our space. I mean, and and people see that, you know, we've put in the work and we have the relationships and we are actually working to have the tough conversations that if something occurs, I mean, there's – we have 6,000 employees. I serve, We serve a million and a half Oklahomans this year. Something's going to happen somewhere yeah. uh, that we're given the benefit of the doubt rather than just immediately go to um, that there is a, a space of – of corruption or evil or whatever, right? So that's right. And I think that if you if you are genuine in your desire 
to build those bridges as we talk about, you and I talk about a lot, um, then, you know, hopefully we can get to that space. That's true. And and I, I appreciate you saying benefit of the doubt because I think there's not just saying, well, what are you saying? I'm supposed to just accept some people when I know they don't like me. I think it's also saying that we've got to let people get through their pain. I don't think some, some people that know that I'm a bridge builder, uh, they'll kind of want to get me maybe in a backroom conversation and say, well, Clarence, that's why we like you, because we can talk to you. And so what do you think about this? Or what do you think about kneeling? I'm like, please don't try to get me to sign your, this invisible document to say that these kids shouldn't express pain. And I think if we want to give someone the benefit of the doubt, part of the benefit of the doubt is you have some pain that we've had 50 years since Martin Luther King to make progress on this. And in some of these areas, we would not get moving until we've got all these deaths going on and a bunch of people are in the streets. I think there, I think um, the guilty parties, um, when we think about us walking in unity, is not really the the people that are maybe the most vocal and out front. I think it's a lot of us who could have been making sacrifices and we were comfortable. Just give me a check, a safe mm. backyard, a few nice neighbors. And if you're suffering pain on the other side of town, not my business, maybe you should be as smart as me. Maybe you should have as much as me. That's not my problem. And, um, I'm not telling other people what to believe, but that's not my philosophy on life. It actually makes me grateful that I am blessed to to be able to feed my family um, and go home and have my children smiling at me and they have a future. But I, I'm like, not for a second should I think that there's something better about me, that I'm not one of those kids that could be walking down the road or a young man trying to figure out life because I had no father. I had a father. These pigs lined up for me, but that doesn't make me better than these kids that don't have it. So I would also include for anyone listening that please also think that benefit of the doubt means let's be willing to let some people process through pain, even if that means they don't like Clarence's message they don't want to talk about any bridge building right now. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Let us keep build, building the bridges. And if we're doing something right, then maybe later on, it can be a welcoming space for all of us. Right? So I think, I think that's what Dr. King had calculated also, that it's going to be painful because a great tomorrow doesn't come with great, without, it does not come without great sacrifice. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. So uh, Mid-America Christian University, a great uh, partner. Any others that you would like to elevate? Wow. So um, I want to talk about a legacy leader. Mm-hmm. We talked about ho- you When you mentioned the name, <laughs> the word legacy leader, I wrote it down <laughs> and I was hoping you would get to one. Oh, man. So that, now I'm going to put you on the spot. So if you weren't going to, now I'm going to ask you about a legacy leader. That, there's a handful of them. Yeah. I've, I've had the privilege to hear some, some stories um, early on. Um, I've had a, a couple of the 
pastors in the Northeast community that actually encouraged me to keep going in the work that we were doing, like uh, uh, Pastor Jemison and Dr. Reed. But um, I also want to talk about a new friend of mine, Dr. George Henderson from Norman, Oklahoma. And he moved to Norman. Uh, he may have been one of the first black families to move in. I don't know if he was the first family. He might have been the first family to move in to help break the um, sundown laws. And so for those that don't know what sundown laws were, they were basically saying that no blacks or N-words or colored people after dark. You can come in during the daytime to serve, be servants, clean houses, do garbage, but be gone by sunset was the rule like in Norman and in Edmond, uh, like pre-1968, 1967. Dr. George Henderson uh, moved his family to Norman and was one of the first, and if not the first. And he still serves at OU to this day, and I think he still lives in the same house that he moved into. I moved to Norman about three or four years ago, and I can't help but think that part of what makes it easier for me to do what I do and to be received, someone like a Dr. George Henderson had to go before me. And um, I appreciate that. When I go into movie theaters to this day, I, I, I love movies. And, but when I walk in, I still think about the fact that my dad had to go in through the back door in Jackson, Tennessee, and he had to sit in the balcony. So I want to just celebrate Dr. George Henderson. Uh, we sat down a couple weeks ago in the, our first face-to-face -face meeting, and he said he starts one of his sentences talking about his conversation with Cesar Chavez and Malcolm X. Now, that's when I am. I'm a young man again now. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're thinking about the conversations that you have you have had and it's not with those guys. <laughs> no, no. You're like, this is. I haven't so, yet lived. I right. still have work to do. Yeah. So he's spoken to Dr. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez, and he's telling me his conversation with these leaders. And the thing that I celebrate is that for him to be a pioneer and to land and one word that I think sums up everything that he says, he lands in the space of hope. And his language is not toxic. And that is just so powerful to me, to be able to um, move into a space. And he told me very bluntly, now he's laughing about it when we're talking about it, but it says, don't kid yourself for one second that I did not question that decision to, at that time, take a $5,000 $5, less in salary that at that time was a tremendous amount of money, move his family down, and he tells the story about his daughter, his five-year-old daughter, had her foot on the grass or stepped on the grass of his neighbor, his neighbor and the neighbor said, if, if she steps on my grass one more time, I'll shoot her. So much is in that phrase. But this was what he subjected himself to because he knew, as he told me, um, to, to encourage me as a younger man who is 
passionate about the same things. He said, that's why, Clarence, we have to stay in spaces where those outside of our community can get to know us, know our character, so that we can get to that future where we can walk together. He said, but don't kid yourself for one minute. There were, he's, he mentioned two situations that really, really made him question his decision to move to Norman, Oklahoma, which now, of course, is a space that's very, very different. That was one uh, with his daughter stepping on the neighbor's grass. Uh, by the way, let me throw this in. He said that for every one incident like that, there were two incidents where neighbors stepped up to welcome him. Mm. So I just want to share the whole Good. story. Another piece, another story was his mother moved in with them. And so there was an incident where he had to uh, get to an appointment and he wasn't able to take her home. So he said, yeah, mom, just run up there and catch a cab. So they get home later that night and his mother's still not home and she shows up super late. And he says, mom, I thought I told you to catch a cab. And she says, sweetheart, the cabs kept picking up everybody behind me. That was, that was the introduction to Norman. Now, for, for any dad, for any human being, any son, say bad stuff to me all you want. Uh, look at, frown at me when I wave at you. Um, watch me when I walk in the store all you want to or all the subtle things. Overlook me or say something bad. But boy, you get tested when it's your children or it's your, your mom, your mom. <laughs> Charlie. Yeah. And he said those were one of the two times. And so I want to celebrate all of the legacy leaders who've gone before us, who made sacrifices. And um, again, I want to tell both sides of the story just so I can say that there are people of all ethnic groups. And I'm even thinking of my, some of my Hispanic friends who are uh, bridge builders. There was, there was a leader in Oklahoma City who's retired now, and I'll, I'll just say that much because uh, she doesn't want her story out there to get back to her because she just doesn't want credit for it. But she went to OU, uh, I think, in either the late 60s, early 70s. And no, this, this may have been, I think, maybe the 80s. So she comes back home from her first uh, year at OU, and she's so excited because she meets a new friend, a black friend, and this black female friend and her are like, hey, let's room together next year. She excitedly tells her parents about this, and she gets back. Uh, she noticed her parents aren't really celebrating as much, and they later come back and tell her, if you room with her, we're not paying your way through school anymore. Well, she made a decision for herself that day that she would pay her own way through school then, and she roomed with her new friend anyway. She decided to break with the unjust uh, traditions and the old uh, racism that was in her family tree at that moment. She said no. And the thing that was even more phenomenal to me, so she took on three jobs, and I believe it was that for she was able to stay in school for about two or three semesters. And then she had to drop out. The most phenomenal part of this story is that at the moment that she told me that story, over 30-some years later, she had never told her black roommate why she quit school. 
She wasn't seeking any credit for it. So I'd say that to say, uh, let's 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 tell a thousand stories, a million stories, so that we don't let the toxic stories dominate the headlines. And let's keep doing what you're doing with this podcast, so everybody can hear mm-hmm. that uh, perhaps things have changed, and p- perhaps we are getting closer to a greater tipping point that everybody can respect. Things are happening that are worth celebrating. So, yes, we have things to change, but, man, let's not uh, skip over the things we could be celebrating. Hmm, Beautiful. Thank you for celebrating those uh, leaders and telling those stories and those who um, even more so are leading from sort of behind the scenes mm-hmm. uh, and changing uh, the world in their own individual space. Uh, it's empowering and uh, powerful at the same time. Um, so it's sort of it, – it shows to me that, of course, we are standing on the shoulders of giants, yes. people who came before us. Mm-hmm. And that I think is a pretty good segue into what Stronger Together is and what you're doing now. What's the next step for bridge building? Uh, we've used that term a lot. So can you give us a, a little bit of summary of, of what the future holds for you? Absolutely. Uh, just thanks for that opportunity. Every year we've hosted a bridge conference, and the bridge conference kind of embodies all of these values that we've seen are helping us to make a difference. Um, and out of what we've learned, um, we I've created a training called the Dream Clock, and it's really helped a lot of people to be able to articulate um, next steps to make the most effective difference. You know, there are so many different scenarios I could jump into where um, we people seem to be well-meaning. They want to make a difference. They want to help those who have less. But then they go running into communities and they take over. They don't listen to the leaders that are there or they don't come behind and support or they have to have control uh, when they show up. And more than not, there will be several incidents that happen where uh, there's a lot of disrespect involved. And, and so there, there's a way to walk this thing out and the dream clock outlines hour by hour how to walk through those steps. So uh, our bridge conference is coming up, um, and we're going to do it annually, and we're going to have it recorded online so people will be able to go out to our Strong Together Facebook page. And we have uh, 25 panelists lined up, and these are leaders who are uh, reflecting the future. They are they're in the ball game. They're helping us get to that tomorrow. For example, on day one, we'll be online. We'll be talking about history. And we're going to have five ethnic groups represented, Native American, Asian American. Now, I do understand that in these different groups, there are subgroups of different ethnicities. But Native American, Asian American, uh, the Latinx and Hispanic community, um, African American, and European American. And... Uh, We're going to ask every group, tell us how your people group would tell the Oklahoma story. What four or five events would you make sure your people group heard? What a powerful question. (laughs) I I can't wait to see the answer to that. 
Do they know they're answering that question yet? They they do. They do. Okay. They do. So they get to think about it. They do. And 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 typically, you know, you ask questions like those, and it's 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 almost a no brainer. You know, what would be the one event that if you said this was the most painful event in history, what event would you say? So, you know, you, 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 sometimes we will hear. You and know, what will be interesting, I'm sorry to interrupt, is there it. will be, there may be people groups who say the same event, but through the different, through a different lens. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and we, and, and so it's like, we don't have to be divided over our angles. I simply want people to understand, let's appreciate the other angles and the stories that are out there. So we're going to have, um, we're going to do uh, our media story on the Tuesday where we have a coalition of all four local TV stations and the Oklahoman. And there's also some radio stations involved where we have been working for three years to promote a healthy dialogue on race. And one of the ways that we've been intentional is all of them agreed. Let's start sharing the stories of contributions in overlooked communities because a lot of minorities have been overrepresented in crime and other things that go on, because the only time you hear something loud enough to catch people's attention are when sirens are going off from these communities. But you miss all of the great educators. You know, some of these teachers may never get... For every bad story, there are a thousand incredible stories. Come on. I mean, some of these principals that never sleep and these teachers that go home, take these children home, help sacrifice. You don't, we don't get to hear their stories all of the time. But these TV stations have said, we want to be a part of tomorrow. We want to make, bring solutions. So that's part of the Bridge Conference. We're going to do education. How can we love uh, children of different ethnicities together? So that's what's coming. And I'm excited about the Police and Community, Community Day. We're going to have black police officers, black police chiefs, white police chiefs um, from Oklahoma communities that will be speaking into where we are and where we need to go. So, I, yeah, there's a bunch of things that we know um, there must be something to change. But, man, can't, is it possible to love the police and love blacks? Hmm. Uh, we say yes. Let's build bridges. Let's figure this thing out. So the bridge conference is coming up, and we're going to be launching podcasts, and we're just going to be out there just sharing stories, creating spaces where we can have open, honest conversations. We're going to have um, we're going to have more tables where we can bring leaders together who typically don't sit down at tables, so they're they're, they're not being informed anymore by what we call the palace news, but they can be informed by the people who are on the ground serving. Beautiful. So uh, are you going to be talking about the Dream Clock, I assume, also in the Bridge Conference? Yes, we are. Good. Yes, we are. We're Good. going to keep sprinkling it in Good. as we, uh, we will have an online video subscription where people can sign up at dreamclock.org. That'll be launched in about a month or so. So people can just get some language behind how to address the race conversation and get past like step one, there's so much offense. There's so many trigger words. Uh, we think we we have something that that can help, and that that's what people are saying about it. They're, they're like this language helps us get down the road. That's exactly where I was going. the The dream clock for me gives really practical a practical understanding of how to engage in the conversation or 
um, to get a different exposure to to something that you may have not had exposure to. So if there's somebody listening to the podcast and is interested in um, opening their mind to a new community um, or to this conversation and they want to engage, what's what is something that the Dream Clock would say sort of in the early time times that they could they could do to to sort of open their their world? Absolutely. I, I'll do uh, an abbreviated version. Uh, one o'clock is the palace. The first thing that all of us have to understand is who is our who's our palace? What's the group of people that we can say a lot by using less words? But we could if something came on the news, we could kind of nod at one another or wink and we know exactly what we were saying to one another. In America, our palace groups are typically uh, those of the same ethnic group, or the those of the secondly those of the same wealth class. And so, you know, when your palace group would be your uses, those are the people who will start nodding their heads even before you finish your statement. They start laughing halfway through your jokes. Um, the them's the people outside of your palace world. Those are the people that uh, a lot of times we withdraw from because we like to build relationships where we have confidence. And so when we feel like, man, I'm going to be misinterpreted, I'm going to be misunderstood, or I'm going to have to explain myself, um, that's when we know we're around the thems. Or you feel invisible, you feel unseen. So one o'clock is first recognize your palace. Who, is our, who are your us's? Who are the thems? Because the thems... Uh, are usually the people that are in your blind spot. So we all have blind spots, just like, you know, and my wife got a Honda Odyssey because, you know, we have four children, and it's like the standard vehicle, right? <laughs> you have to have a Honda Odyssey that's right, if you have more right. kids? Okay. Um, get that minivan, and they all just pour out. And uh, But in the Honda Odyssey, there's a serious blind spot on there. And, and so, you know, I'm of the philosophy that, I don't want to get in an accident. So I teach my children defensive driving. But when I'm trying to figure out if someone's in that blind spot while I'm driving, I have to get extremely uncomfortable to assure that no one is in that blind spot. And the question about the blind spot is, is something there? So Clarence has to know that my palace group, the group that would, if a George Floyd incident happens, we connect instantly because of our history, are blacks. And it would be more middle-class blacks. Um, and even I have, you know, poverty in my background, some. So we, I would connect with that space. The thems in my world would have been, would be wealthy whites, where if they crack jokes and start saying stuff or try to imply something to me, I'm like, you need to speak directly because I don't know what you're trying to imply to me right now. But when I recognize who's in my blind spot, that's when I know to make sure that, okay, be careful. You could be offended more quickly or you could misinterpret them more quickly. So be careful not to misinterpret them. Now, I can't go through the whole dream clock because I'm, <laughs> my whole brain is starting to fire off the other hours. Yeah. Two o'clock is simply saying, between us and them, it's easier for us to simply start saying hi or not allowing the thems to be invisible. So the first challenge at 2 o'clock is asking, how do you engage those of a different ethnic group? Are they invisible when they walk past you? 
or do you even speak? So small acts of kindness, simply saying hello for a company, you would ask yourself, who has been invisible in our company? Who feels less seen when it's time to say, I want to get promoted? I could picture myself being on the executive team. I could picture myself contributing to solutions. Who would feel most visible? So a company would say, who's invisible? A family in a neighborhood would say, uh, oh, wow, you know, we're having a birthday party with our kid. Who's most likely to be overlooked? I had uh, an Indian father come up to me at the end of one of our presentations at one of the uh, big organizations here in Oklahoma City. I won't name it because I don't want people to identify him. But he was kind of almost in tears because he understood the minority story. He said, you know, my kids come home because when the kids are passing out birthday invitations, you know, everybody plays together. But when it comes time to get invited to the birthday parties, his kids consistently get overlooked and he has to talk to them over and over again when they get home. So seeing others is two o'clock and it's simply saying when you have a them group, you actually put, have to put more effort into seeing them well because by nature, we like to connect with those we feel confident will understand us when we try to speak. Man alive, Clarence. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you, it, um, there, is, uh, there are people who want to, to embark upon the work, right, who want to um, sort of begin self-discovery and to be bridge builders. And I, I think, I mean, the, the times we've talked about the Dream Clock, which is quite a few, it really um, continues to give me the tools that I need to move beyond that level of intimidation that we sort of all have when we're trying to, bri- to build bridges with the thems, yes. right, in our, yes. in our life. And so uh, thank you for creating that and giving us um, a little bit of insight into what the Dream Clock is. Uh, thank you for being a bridge builder yourself. Um, I do believe that we are stronger together. And so I'm going to use all of your, <laughs> your <laughs> copyrighted great. terms here while you're sitting here. But uh, we are for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I consider you a friend and, and a it's partner mutual. in this work. And I really appreciate you uh, not just being here, but for your work in the community and, and your uh, partnership in helping move us into um, the, this next space that we're, that we're moving in together. So thank you. Um, with that, thank you for your time today. Um, and thank you for sharing these stories that we all just need to know. Mm-hmm. They are there if you will just look for them. And uh, I'm honored by your time today and the opportunity for uh, our relationship. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Clarence.